we have to pass the bill so that you can uh, find out what is in it. What? If you like your doctor, you will be able to keep your doctor. What difference at this point does it make? If you're looking to make sense out of what's going on in the world today, then you've come to the right place. Welcome to Southern Sense Talk Radio with your host, Annie, the Radio Chicky Bellis, and featuring Curtis C.S. Bennett and the most interesting guests that you'll find anywhere on Internet radio. And you can join the show and let your voice be heard by dialing 917-889-3675. So sit back, relax, and remember, Southern Sense is Common Sense. Another adventure here on Southern Sense. You're listening live on Blog Talk Radio, Facebook, iTunes, Stitcher, Spreaker, you, no, YouTube band us again. Um, iHeart, uh, we're up on Apple, Amazon, and half a dozen other places. I have no idea. I'm your hostess with the least mostest here on Southern Sense, Annie, the Radio Chickadee, along with my courageous co-host going, what is going wrong today with our technical difficulties? Curtis C.S. Bennett. Good afternoon, Curtis. Curtis, unmute yourself. And it seems I don't have a co-host. So, Curtis, we yeah, cannot hear you. Oh, that, we got you. We got you. It's a little button called unmute. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Uh, we're starting at a later time today. Normally, we start at 1 o'clock. We're starting at 2.30 to 4 o'clock. We're trimming the show down a little bit. we got great guests lined up. we got the marks today. Uh, Mark Mix, who is the president of the National Right to Work Committee, as well as the president of the National Right to Work Legal Defense Foundation that does a lot of great work. And then my good friend Mark Tapscott from the Epic Times. So we have ourselves a jam-up show today. And Curtis, with that said, and no ado, we'll do our dedication today at the end of the show. Normally we do uh, start off each and every show with a dedication to Fallen Hero. But because uh, Heritage Foundation took the holiday weekend off, we don't have uh, Hannah Davis with us. Uh, so we're going to do the dedication at the end and bring our first guest in, our victim of the day, Mark Mix. Good <laughs> afternoon, Mark, and how are you today? You're in for it. You're really in for it. Yeah, oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. It sounds like it. And it's good to be on with you. Thanks for the opportunity to talk with you on what is a beautiful day here in Northern Virginia on a Friday. It's like 
78 degrees and a blue sky. And what a great way to start off a Labor Day weekend. Oh, it is. It is. And I have to apologize to those that are listening, uh, watching on the video on YouTube. Again, we're having technical difficulties. For some reason, my computer decided to go kafui on me this morning. Uh, but we still are broadcasting. Anyway, um, there is so much to talk about uh, this holiday weekend, Labor Weekend. A good day to be speaking with you. Um, I don't know if you caught a glimpse of President Biden just a little while ago doing his uh April jobs report. I'm sorry. I left my puke bag in the kitchen. I just, I I couldn't take it. I really, I mean, where does he come up with this stuff? Yeah, and it's really interesting. You know, he was uh, doing a whiteboard show, uh, I think, earlier in the week. And, you know, all of the statistics that he cites are just people understand it's just not true. I mean, you can't go to a grocery store. You can't go to the, the gas station. You can't go anywhere without feeling the results of an economic policy that's designed to dramatically increase costs and and to reduce rights, frankly, from a standpoint, from a right-to-work perspective. But, yeah, he they just make this stuff up, and uh, we're supposed to believe it. And, you know, I guess they can give you all the statistics they want, but at the end of the day, you know, it's what you see and what you feel and what you know that pretty much guides the attitudes of, of folks around the country. And I think there's a large majority of Americans that realize that what he's saying is not true. I mean, does the man even know how to talk, how to speak the truth? That's the first question. Uh, but when I'm listening to him and he's talking about labor unions and big corporations working together to benefit the worker, I'm going, I'm sorry, on what planet are you on? Um, wasn't there just recently a case, uh, let me pull this up, a trucker strike. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, Root has carried this story, and I think you also did an article on it, this trucker strike, uh, that actually cost the cement company a lot of money, where these union officials act outside of the law and absolutely no regard for what it may cost the employer much less if they even bring the employees back if they're going to have jobs for them because of the destruction and the wanted disregard that the unions have. Yeah, and that's a story um, that came out of Washington State, and it, it went to the United States Supreme Court. And it's kind of an interesting story. Well, I shouldn't say interesting. It's a, it's a devastating story because what it did and what the, the courts out in Washington State said was that union officials that would basically uh, – on purpose create property damage um, were going to be exempt from prosecution under tort law in their state. And so the story was this is a concrete company that had, I think, 16 con- uh, cement trucks that were going out on a job. The, the drivers came in in the morning. They got their trucks loaded up. They got the, the, the drum spinning, and out of the yard they went to do a, a cement pour. And then little did the employer know that the union had planned a job action that day and the workers were going to go on strike. And so they brought all the trucks back into the yard with the cement still in the trucks. And while they did mitigate some of the damage, I think nine of the trucks, the guys left the drum rolling, but the employer never knew that the trucks were back on the yard and it cost them something north of $100,000 in cement materials that day. Well, they immediately went to court and filed a tort action against the union for this, you know, basically – this, they planned this property destruction, 
And the Washington court, the, the first court of entry said, no, no problem. You know, this is a National Labor Relations Act, a federal jurisdiction under this, because they're a labor union, they're under federal labor law. And actually went to the highest court in Washington State, and the Washington State court agreed. So the company ended up filing a petition for certiorari with the U.S. Supreme Court. The Supreme Court decided to take it. And the U.S. Supreme Court didn't even rein them in, but they said, why don't you take this case back and look at it again, because we don't think that this, this planned demolition and destruction of property is something that ought to be exempt from prosecution under regular law where someone destroys property. And if I did that to you, you would have a job, you would have an action against me, a tort action against me, and I would be, I could be responsible for the damage that I caused. But union officials make the case that they're, they're exempt from that prosecution, and the courts in Washington State agreed with them, and it ended up in the Supreme Court. And while the court here did not say, yeah, no, you're, you're, you should be covered, they sent it back for a remand, and the unions may get away with it still. But that's the type of privilege that organized labor officials have gotten, whether it be through a state legislature, whether it be through Congress, or whether it under this administration or Joe Biden get it from the executive branch. You know, I, I, I'm sorry. I, I'm not an attorney. I did manage a law firm, quite, uh, quite honestly, in Great Neck, New York. I'm a retired cop, mm-hmm. so I do know the ABCs of the law basics. And that is malicious intent to cause damage to private property. I don't care how you look at it. How can a judge not see that this was deliberate and malicious? Yeah. Well, that's a great question. And, and I think that's the same question that the majority of the Supreme Court had when they said, you know what, you need to take a look at this again, because we understand that, you know, it was malicious damaging of property. It was, it was planned out. It was all structured. And, yeah, under ordinary circumstances, they would have called the police, and, and the police would have shown up and said, yeah, I, we see the damage, we see the evidence, we understand what happened, and uh, away you go um, with getting some relief from that damage. But it, it is amazing. You know, union officials, it's interesting. We go back to a U.S. Supreme Court case back in 1973, a case called Enmons, E-N-M-O-N-S. People don't, when I say this, people don't believe it, so I spell it so they can look it up. This is a case out of Louisiana where the union uh, destroyed transformers. They shot out transformers with a rifle, and they were on strike. And basically what the, the Supreme Court back then said that union officials could not be prosecuted for acts of violence used to achieve legitimate union objectives. And believe it or not, and union officials have used that defense when there's destruction or when there's damage or when there's violence on a picket line. They've used that protection of this federal, this U.S. Supreme Court case saying, oh, no, 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 we can't be prosecuted for that because we're trying to achieve a legitimate union objective. If it's a pay increase or better terms and conditions of employment, they actually are, they are able to use violence to achieve their objectives. It's really a, a, really a singular part of American jurisprudence for sure. And any any common sense person would basically say there is no excuse for violence unless violence is used against you. But in this case, the employers are not using violence. There is no need to defend themselves with violence. So a reasonable individual would make that determination. But that's not the court system we're dealing with in today's day and age, is it? No, and, and unfortunately, you know, no matter which direction you look at it from, it seems like it, there's, there's one part that's spinning it as completely political, and boy, oh boy, if we end up with you know, that being the determining factor in, in legal decisions, we are in real trouble because you know, justice is supposed to be above 
all of that. And uh, the rule of law is supposed to be above all of that. But yet union officials have carved out really unique privileges like the Edmonds decision on, at the Supreme Court and like an ongoing 90-year um, uh, privilege of being able to compel workers to pay union dues or fees in order to get or keep a job. Uh, this is a private organization that has this power granted by the federal government that allows them to basically say to an employer, you know what, Jimmy hasn't paid his union dues this month. He's got 30 days. If he doesn't pay, you have to fire him, even though Jimmy may be the best worker or Leslie may be the, 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 the best worker, whoever it is, if they don't pay union dues, they don't work. And so this Labor Day, that's a, certainly a topic we want to talk about. It's a topic we should talk about year-round, but certainly it brings itself to a head during this time when labor unions are trying to take credit for all this good stuff they do, but yet they have all this power and privilege to a point where they're not really trying to recruit new workers. They're trying to recruit new politicians that will give them more power over workers. You know, it's funny because I've seen the progression of unions over the years. And when they first started out, they had a legitimate purpose and use. And in today's day and age, with the laws we have on the books, there are so many protections for the everyday employee. And, and here you, you basically started to cite a case that you wrote about in, uh, going on in Alaska where the Alaska government is saying, we're not going to deduct dues because you're not advising. What the heck? This is crazy. This is crazy. This is not supposed to be happening here. Uh, We're going to be doing this okay, and we're going to be trying to save the show. Here we go. I don't understand. I tell you, anything that can go wrong, are you sure today's not Friday the 13th? (laughs) I still can hear you, oh my It's fine. Yeah, I got gotcha. you. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, uh, you're starting to talk about a case going on in Alaska where the Alaskan government says, we're not going to deduct dues because you're not advising the union members that they have a Second Amendment, I'm sorry, a First Amendment right of free speech, uh, and you're compelling them to accept your speech as theirs, but that's not what they want. So there's this fight going on, and I do remember... New York State at one point had a very similar fight back in the 80s. And I remember certain members that came on to NYPD were saying, I'm not paying union dues because I'm not agreeing with where the union stands on political issues. And that was fine. But suddenly now you must pay dues whether or not you agree with what the union stands for or not. Yeah, and that, that's a case that we argued and won at the United States Supreme Court, a case called Janus v. AFSCME, AFSCME, the American Federation of State, County, Municipal Employees Union. And basically this, this case came out of Illinois back in, gosh, 2018 now. It started way before that, but it got to the U.S. Supreme Court in, in 2018. And the Supreme Court ruled that any government worker anywhere in America at any level of government could not be compelled to pay dues or fees to a labor union in order to work for government. And they argued it on, we argued it on First Amendment grounds, and the Supreme Court majority agreed with us on that, saying this was a First Amendment speech protection, a constitutional protection for workers. But the Supreme Court went one step farther. They said it's okay if a worker gives the state and or the municipality or the local government or the union can prove that an individual employee has waived their First Amendment rights and is willing to pay those dues. So what the governor of Alaska did is he said he issued an executive order and said, you know what, we're, gonna, we're not going to collect any dues 
from state employees until we know that each of those employees have that have given their affirmative waiver of their First Amendment rights before we take that money out of their paycheck. That's exactly what the Supreme Court said as kind of the second stroke of the Janus decision. First one was, yeah, First Amendment protections, you don't have to pay, you can't be fired if you don't pay dues or fees to the union. And then the second stroke was, and oh, by the way, you have, in order to take that money out of their paycheck, you have to have an affirmative waiver of, the person has to affirmatively waive their First Amendment rights before you can take the money. Well, Alaska said, we're just following the Supreme Court here, and of course the Ninth Circuit stepped in, and, uh, and you can only imagine what the Ninth Circuit did to it, and they said, no, you can't do it. But the governor and the attorney general in the state of Alaska have decided to step in front of the U.S. Supreme Court and file a petition with the brief, a brief in the U.S. Supreme Court asking the Supreme Court to look at this and said, hey, we just tried to follow your order, and the Ninth Circuit says we can't. How about you take this case and, and make it, uh, make it to, to, to fulfill what you indicated in the Janus case back in 2018? We're hopeful. And we, are, our lawyers, have been working with the lawyers in Alaska, talking with them about preparation for this petition for certiorari and how to, how to present the case because we obviously litigated the Janus case and won it. And so we hope that the Supreme Court will take it in this next term and they will come back and say, look, if you want money taken out of your paycheck, just sign this sheet of paper that says you're waiving your First Amendment right and there's no harm, no foul, you get it. But obviously, Ann, you can think about how opposed to the, the union is to that, to have to go back and ask people if they want them want, uh-huh. want to sign a waiver <laughs> yes, and support politics, gee. right? You got it. You think? The union want, doesn't – no, they don't need your money. They, they don't need your money for the least bit. Gold toilets in their bathrooms. Uh, <laughs> shall we say more? Yes. <laughs> Yeah. You remember Gus Bonova in Manhattan, the SC Service Employees Union, International Union guy. He was the president. He did have a gold toilet, I think, if, if I remember correctly, yes. in his penthouse down I, in I, Manhattan. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yes, in the penthouse. Yes, gold toilet. Yeah, paid by your union dues. Uh, <laughs> um, you know, but there are, there are glimmers of hope in, in what we're seeing in the rulings that are coming out now. And I had to laugh my tushy off. Um, when I read the article dealing with Southwest Airlines, now kind oh, of like walk us yeah. through what happened with this one stewardess, uh, Carter, and how she brought about action. And I want to know also the ramifications after this ruling. How does that go now? Say, for example, uh, those object to a COVID vaccine in order to maintain their job or any other mandate that may violate a religious belief? Yeah, that's that's pretty important, and I think there are repercussions of the Carter case that are pretty important going down line. But uh, this is a this is a very interesting case. It's it's almost a sad case. It's got a happy ending so far, but it's still being litigated. We are we are actually representing Charlene Carter, the National Right to Work Legal Defense Foundation. Back in 2017, she reached out to the union official. She had nothing to do with Southwest Airlines. She was, started messaging a union official. Well, actually, she started before that because she was objecting to the political stands that the union was taking. And she emailed the president of her union that she was forced to associate with and forced to pay dues and fees to in order to keep her job and said that she was going to be supporting uh, the opponent to the union official for the next election for president of the union. And then the union, the Transportation Workers Union Local 556, decided to come to Washington, D.C. with a bunch of members, with a bunch of the officers of the union and others, paid for by union dues and fees to come up and protest in Washington at the Women's March that was sponsored by Planned Parenthood. 
Well, Charlene, when she was a teenager, she had had an abortion, and she realized after that that it was a very serious matter, and she got it was one of the most sincere religious objections that she had was having any of her money used to to put in you know to be, to use for that purpose in the future. Well, obviously, when the when the the march was sponsored by Planned Parenthood, she really objected, and she wrote a a private email to the union president saying, "This is outrageous what you're doing. Here's what you're supporting." And the union official immediately went to Southwest Airlines and said she was being harassed by Charlene. This was, it had nothing to do with her employment. It had everything to do with her relationship with the union. And she, she encouraged the Southwest HR department to fire Charlene, and they did. They brought her in like a week later and said, you're fired. She had a 20-year employment record with not a single employment blemish in that record. The only reason she was fired is because the union demanded it, because the union president was spending her money that she had to pay as a condition of employment on causes that had nothing to do with her workplace, had nothing to do with the terms and conditions of her employment, had everything to do with about politics and taking on support and supporting an issue that, that basically you know, harmed Charlene to the deepest levels of her soul. And so Southwest complied. They fired her. She contacted the National Right to Work Legal Defense Foundation, and we went on a five-year legal odyssey that's still ongoing. She went in front of a jury trial down in Texas in July of last year, and she won a $5.1 million settlement against the airline and the union. Well, obviously, the... The judge ordered that Southwest Airlines inform other employees, inform, inform all the other flight attendants, that the, the company would not discriminate against employees based like they did with Charlene. Well, the Southwest Airlines put out a statement afterwards, that, uh, apparently complying with the court order, that was basically 180 degrees divergent of what the judge ordered. They said, well, we don't discriminate, and we will hold you to the same standards that we held Charlene to. And so the judge actually sanctioned Southwest Airlines and required that three of their attorneys attend religious liberty training. They've appealed that case. The unions appealed the case. The, the, the compensatory and punitive damage has been reduced a little bit because there's, there's statutory caps on how much can be awarded in a litigation like this. So it's down to about, I think, $800,000. But the good news is mm-hmm. Charlene's back on the job. She's, she's flying again. She's doing what she loves. People are whispering in her ear saying they're supportive of her and thank her for standing up. The problem, though, unfortunately, Anne, is she still has to pay union fees in order to keep her job. I don't mean to laugh about it. It's not funny. But that's the way the law reads. But So the case goes on, is, is ongoing. But what's happened here, Anne, is really exciting, is that this issue has brought a whole new audience to kind of the compulsory unionism issue, the idea of religious discrimination, discrimination on content, things like that. And I think, to your point, um, and I don't know whether a judge, we've gotten a legal ruling on it yet, but it kind of brings to it the attention of, the idea of mandatory vaccines, for sure. It brings that issue to the forefront, again, by saying, yeah, as a condition of your employment, you have to do this, even though you may have sincere religious objections to vaccinations or have objections in general to them. And I guess union officials would say, well, you either do it or go find another job, which is not really uh, uh, an appropriate remedy for something like that, that has nothing to do, you know, on, in Charlene's case, it has nothing to do with her employment or how she does her job or anything like that. You know, it's, it's a very interesting case, and um, I, I had a laugh when I saw that they had to take this mandatory uh, religious uh, instruction, and that was with, let me make sure I get this one, Alliance Defending Freedom, which is a Christian legal organization. So they ended up using a nonprofit to instruct these attorneys on what our constitutional rights are. Because that's basically yeah, what and defending, that- our constitutional rights. 
Yeah, that's right. And, and of course, the, the, the company objected to that. They objected to the use of that particular organization because it's not on the uh, acceptable list for, for most folks. And, uh, you know, it, it's a really interesting battle, and uh, uh, it's ongoing. Um, there's probably another year or two left in this litigation, um, but we're going to be we're going to be right beside Charlene all the way, continuing to help her defend her rights, you know, her constitutional rights, her workplace rights, and those rights that should be really t- relatively basic uh, when it comes to uh, employee-employer relationships, and and then when a union is involved as well. Well, you know, I, I think the Southern Poverty Law Center had a little something to do about yeah, whether or not right. they liked it. <laughs> the alliance yeah, the Alliance Defending Freedom, Freedom was called- a, a hate group. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, listen, we we only got a few minutes left. This is going so fast because I knew there was so much to talk to you about and so much going on this Labor Day. Uh, but we have um, Julie Sue. She is not getting confirmed. It looks like, and Joe Manchin had a lot to do with holding that up. Uh, but Joe Biden just recently said, "Well, she's going to be there forever, even though she's not approved by the Congress as the Constitution requires." Uh, it doesn't matter. We're just going to violate the Constitution, and we're going to keep her in the job. We're just going to keep on calling her an acting director, so she's not officially the director. So they, they're kind of like skirting around the issue, aren't they? Yeah, indeed they are. You know, Article 2, Section 2 talks about the advice and consent of the Senate for, you know, pr- pr- confirmations like this. Uh, they have not confirmed. They confirmed her earlier as a deputy secretary. She got uh, 47 votes against her back then, but this is obviously a role that has a lot more authority and uh, it actually controls the entire agency. And, yeah, you're right. She can't get the votes to pass, and Joe Manchin is just one of a couple of Democrat senators, Angus King from Maine, uh, Kristen Sinema from, from Arizona. Uh, they've all indicated they have opposition to her nomination and to her uh, confirmation, and so she, can't, she doesn't have the votes to, to serve. And so, yeah, Biden has basically said, yeah, we're just going to let her serve there until whenever we get defeated. Or, and I suspect she, if Joe Biden were to be reelected, she might continue to serve as the acting secretary of labor <laughs> under oh, the please. rules that uh, they're establishing. And, and, and there's a, there, apparently there's a conflict between two different statutes. There's a vacancy act, and then there's – that was passed a while back, and then there's another one. And there's so – obviously there's litigation, potential litigation about what – statute applies to her whether or not she can be paid because she hasn't been confirmed and how long she can stay in the seat and congress is getting engaged in that in fact in fact virginia fox who's the chairman of the the health and education labor committee in the in the house of representatives has sent a letter back to the white house saying you know okay what are you what is this how are you doing this and i don't think she's got a straight answer yet they're just look this is a, a tyranny and we're going to run it the way we want and we don't care what anyone says and we're going to disregard the basics of the advice and consent function of the legislative branch of uh, of our government yeah the u.s government accountability office said that they're working on it trying to get a legal opinion <laughs> uh well here's a legal opinion you're full of crap get her out of there <laughs> you know that's yeah. it simple but there's also yeah. questioning about whether or not uh, julie sue actually um may have committed perjury before congress um she was doing a joe bidenomics uh lesson to congress and and really <laughs> got everything wrong so wouldn't that in itself disqualify her? Well, yeah, 
you know, and those, there's so much politics involved in all of this, and, and you're right. I mean, she's, uh, that's why I think there's senators that say, you know what, we just can't support her. And not only that, but her record when she was, had an equivalent position out in California when they were regulating small businesses and regulating individuals um, in a way that was very empowering to organize labor. Um, yeah, it's, and I think you know, all of that evidence piled up has made it virtually impossible for her to be confirmed. And that raises the, art, the larger question, okay, if she can't be confirmed, then how can she, be, how can she hold that position for any length of time um, is really the question. And you know, I guess they'll continue to look into it. But yeah, she, we have been pretty proactive with our membership across the country, encouraging them to contact their senators about this particular problem. And I think they've done that. And, you know, that's the one way we get politicians to change their behavior is by convincing them that there's enough interest and enough excitement and interest and action out there that uh, it may cost them politically. And, and, you know, it's no surprise that they get a little more observant of what their constituents say when they're kind of an election cycle. I, I don't know if anyone else realizes that, but, you know, that's one of the truisms. I, I'm being facetious, obviously. Uh, <laughs> elections all around, they change their behavior. Yeah, they change their behavior. Uh, slightly, just just a little yeah. bit slightly. You know, you think, uh, hey, uh, let's 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 buy some votes. Oh yeah, speaking about buying votes, aren't they trying to change the overtime rules to people that are on salaries, which would raise the cost of goods and services across the board astronomically? Now, um, when I managed a law firm, I was on a salary, and I was told at that point, back in the eighties, uh, there was no overtime. If you came in on your day off, that's part of your job. Uh, but suddenly now, salaried people are being treated the same way as hourly wage people? Yeah, they, I think they, what they've done is increase the, exe- the wages for an exemption. And I think it was like maybe 32000 It's gone up to 55000 But, yeah, they've changed some of the details there. And I, I haven't studied it that closely, but I know that there's a dramatic increase in the cost of small businesses and others when this happens. And and you know that doesn't do anything to create opportunity it doesn't do anything to create jobs and create an environment where jobs can flourish and new investment can be made i mean it what it does do and, and we've seen it in for example in the service sector it drives you know people out of the out of the opportunities that exist at some of those employment levels and and I, they just don't understand it but i guess that's bidenomics i guess we he'll go through it and explain that by whiteboard at some point in the future i suspect it's, it's funny, about seven or eight years ago, there was a move here in South Carolina for some people that were working at McDonald's, the fast food restaurants, and they were looking for the $15 an hour minimum wage. And I, you know, being someone that put myself through college working three jobs on minimum wage, I know what minimum wage is and how hard you work for it. However, I'm sorry, flipping burgers for $15 an hour? I don't think so. And as soon as I saw that and people started to protest outside the McDonald's, I said, I give them less than one year. That McDonald's is going to close down. They're going to revamp the entire store. They're going to have it 95% automated. And those people that are looking for the $15 job, an hour job, oh, yeah, you may have two or three people working inside McDonald's instead of 10 or 12. You're going to kill the jobs and put automation in. And this is what we see. You, you try to go to any grocery store, and you've got more lanes there that you self-scan than having a cashier there. And th- this is what people are doing when they push for that minimum wage without realizing they're going to kill jobs doing that. Now, how do, how do we combat that? 
Well, that's another political question. I mean, you, you have to be engaged in it, and it's very hard. It's very hard to fight against higher wages. That's and the left knows that. The, they know it to the point that they push it. And you know, if you're if you're against higher wages, well, somehow you're against uh, you know apple pie and Chevrolets. And and frankly, that's not the truth. <laughs> I mean, it's just an amazing thing. You know, it's economics 101. And I think, and, and to your point. I mean, obviously, there's been there's been obvious changes in the quick serve restaurant business. I mean, there's kiosks now. You're right. You walk into a McDonald's or a Wendy's or something like that, and you're ordering yourself. You're not talking to a human being. You're waiting. Two people package everything up and deliver it to you. And who knows what happens in the kitchen now? I mean, we've seen those robots that can make hamburgers. Um, that's a little bit spooky, <laughs> but then again, that's that's what we're seeing. And it's exactly to the point you're making is that people don't understand that when you raise costs. You raise prices, and I mean, obviously, you know, you have in economics, they'll talk about the wage price push, inflation, and all that. Well, inflation is a function of money supply, and Joe Biden has has stuffed enough money into the into the process, uh, spending wise, that he's created the inflation. No one seems to understand that, but the the same thing is true at the micro level. You know, the ma- microeconomics work the same way as the macroeconomics in many cases, and those microeconomics are on display with. My wife just got back from the grocery store a little while ago, and she called me. She goes, Mark, I've got two bags of groceries, $134. <laughs> like, yes, yes. I get it. I get it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. used to be you were happy if you had four bags of groceries for $20. Now you're lucky if you have two bags for 125 But, Mark, it is a pleasure having you. We've got to have you on back again. A lot more conversation to have. You have the National Rights to Work Committee as well as the National Rights to Work Legal Defense Foundation. There's links on the show page. People can click on it, go straight to your page to see what you're doing. And you have on the show page a thing called Know Your Rights, information for employees, so people can click on that and check out what industry they're in and what their rights are and all the hard work that you do to keep America running. God bless you, sir. Thank you, Anne. Appreciate the opportunity. It's my pleasure. Take care. Mark Mix. Check out his website. And we've got the next Mark up here in the battle, in, in the battle with us all here today. And we haven't had a chance to talk to him very often because we have been sick and everything else has gone kaflooey on us. Mark Tapscott of the Epoch Times or Epoch Times, <laughs> whichever way I decide to say it today. <laughs> How are you doing, Mark? I am doing fine, and uh, let me just say that your previous guest, Mark Mix, is somebody that I've known and covered for a long time, and he is one of the real heroes uh, in my book in Washington, D.C. Oh, he is. (coughs) Excuse me. I still have this cough. And just so people know that I ended up with the influenza A virus and I'm finding out the cough will take at least a month to go away, even though I'm clear of the virus. It d- does a little da- <coughs> excuse me, damage on your lungs. So if I cough, I apologize. Mm. Well, don't worry. has a vaccine being developed right now. <laughs> a vaccine for influenza? I think yeah. I'll skip that. <laughs> you think? <laughs> Speaking of mandates, You've got an excellent article uh, up that you put up here just recently in the Epoch Times. Masks are required for everyone by order of the L.A. Public Department of Health. It seems now, because there's this new COVID variant out there, actually two new variants out there, everyone's in all a tizzy 
and now mask mandates are back in place in some areas. Uh, but we're finding that there are studies through the uh, National Institute of Health that was done in, um, let me see if I can get this right, South Korea and Germany that are showing masks are bad. Well, they certainly are showing some, some very serious evidence that that uh, may well be the case. Um, the study in South Korea, for example, found that um, if you wear a face mask, and specifically an N95 or an N94, uh, which are supposedly the two most effective ones, that you have, if you, if you wear them over an extended period of time, um, you have the greater risk, eight times as great a risk, of having excessive inhalation of what are called volcanic um, organic compounds. And toxic, volatile, organic compounds, you wrote. That, that's, toxic, that's a mouthful. Toxic, organic compounds. I, I never compounds. can remember that. Yeah. that four. <laughs> I got your back, Mark. I got your back. <laughs> Thank you, Anthony. I appreciate it. Um, those, those are serious business because they are linked to chronic uh, uh, headaches, nausea, uh, damage to some of our organs, uh, most notably the liver, and even some cancer indications. So, and that's just one study, but there have been other studies that were done prior to the pandemic that uh, were heading, pointing in the same direction. But then you have this study from Germany, which was entirely separate from the South Korean study, uh, and they reached uh, very similar uh, conclusions, and they were especially concerned about the effect that um, extended use of masks would have on pregnant women, young children, and teens. So mm -hmm. th there clearly is some... Uh, credible scientific evidence, and it appears to be growing with some regularity as more and more uh, scientists look into this uh, to, to suggest that requiring masks is not a good public health measure, and in fact, it may be a very bad one. Yeah, well, I had a friend of mine uh, when we were battling our county council over the local mask mandates. And he's a scientist, and he, he was explaining about the droplets and the microns and how the masks really don't prevent these droplets from being caught inside your mask and you inhaling them or you exhaling them and to someone else. So they really do not offer any protection. Now, the N95 seem to have the best protection in that area, However, there's a caveat, which I thought was hysterical, not really that funny, but you have to lay them out there, expose them to the air for a minimum of 30 minutes to mitigate the, 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 uh, the hazards caused by the TVOCs, the toxic violet, or whatever it is. <laughs> yeah, you know that thing, the toxic volatile organic compounds. Right. to actually lower those levels enough that you can tolerate them and not get yep. sick. So before you can walk into a building that mandates a mask, you've got to sit out there and have this mask sit out there in the open air for half an hour. But God knows what other toxins that mask is being exposed to 
if you're sitting in your car, the car fumes, the carbon um, monoxide, uh, what, what? Right. The, the bottom line here is the effectiveness of masks, like the N or the KN95 or 94, which is what they call it in South Korea, um, is very much open to question. You would think that a mask would be an effective barrier, but the reality is in many, many cases we already know with certainty that it's not, and there are growing indications that there are additional problems with it that um, make it, you know, not a public health tool. But that's not of concern to folks who want to impose a new mask mandate, at least in my observation. Uh, with many of them, it seems like the object is not the protection of public health. It's on the rest of us. They like to tell us what to do and what not to do. Well, the- well, across the top of your article, this is what I wrote. I said, is this an attempt to alter the elections again? Good question. Did I lose you, Mark? Oh, I'm still here. Can you not hear me? Oh, no. Oh, no, I didn't hear you. No, there was dead silence there for a while because I had asked... Um, is this an attempt to now do another election altering, a way to alter the election, oh, yeah, yeah, absentee I, ballots, yeah, mail-in ballots? Yeah. I, I heard that, and I said there does certainly seem to be a pattern emerging here where you mm-hmm. create a crisis, a nationwide crisis, that then becomes the justification for these extraordinary voting measures, which are much easier uh, to take advantage of and, in effect, create um, um, the appearance of an outcome that may or may not actually reflect reality of voters. So, yeah, there you go. Yeah, because there is a list of places now that have mask mandates. One is the Morris Brown College, which is a historically black university in Atlanta. And they're saying, well, this is going to only be for two weeks. But we heard that two-week excuse before, and that didn't quite work out too well. Uh, Lionsgate, you know, this is a a Hollywood thing. And also now certain people on certain floors are now required to wear masks. Not all the floors, not everyone, but certain floors and certain people. Uh, Kaiser Paramenti in in California, which is a health care company, and of course, it's either California or New York. United Health Services in New York, Auburn Community Hospital in New York, Upstate Medical Hospitals in Syracuse, New York. So you got New York and California trying to set the pattern for the rest of the United States, saying, "Oh, panic time! Masks have to come back." What's next? The, a new COVID vaccine? Oh, wait a minute! Didn't Joe Biden already tout a whole new COVID vaccine that's going to be mandatory? Well, he did say that it's being developed, and he did say. It probably, um, I think, probably will be recommended for everybody. And he, as soon as Congress gets back to town uh, in Washington, D.C. next week, um, they're going to ask the White House is going to appropriate hundreds of millions of more dollars to fund the research for this new vaccine. And 
the indications that I've seen so far, I don't claim to be a medical doctor, of course, but the indications that I've seen is that, um, and in fact, the CDC said for 96% of the country, uh, admissions are not up at hospitals due to COVID or any of these, either of these two new variants. So um, it looks more like political opportunity uh, taking than um, public health measures. Yeah, now I was, I was reading in your article um, that uh, CDC officials have said they have no such requirement because hospital admissions for COVID-19 cases are presently low for 96% of the country. So you're talking yeah. about maybe a small 4%. Uh, so maybe the question should be why that 4%, why those locations are more prone to an infection and what is causing that wants you control that instead of yeah. penalizing 96% of the rest of the country that is doing everything right. Yeah, exactly. And and I asked specifically, I asked the CDC um, media folks, what is the threshold, the official threshold in terms of hospital admissions? Um, <clears throat> at what point do you guys at CDC say, okay, this is um, more than enough admissions over what part of the country, what portion of the country, that you would then say, we need to issue a mask mandate. And, of course, I got no response. <laughs> no, no, no. They, they would have to actually put themselves on the line, and then, heaven forbid, <laughs> you yeah. know, you tricky little wonder. journalist. <laughs> and, and then they wonder why people don't trust the government anymore. No, you wonder why you don't trust the government. Oh, talking about trusting government, lo and behold, um, you wrote a great article about a biolab that they found in California that's a Chinese black market lab. But you, you don't think that's the only lab they could possibly have in the United States, just this one. The Chinese wouldn't possibly think of hiding a couple more. Do you think? Maybe? Well. Annie, let me ask you a question. Have you uh -oh. heard anything else about that particular bio lab in the last, oh, I don't know, week? Nope. No. There's been no coverage that I've seen about that bio lab. It's as if somebody turned a switch off and all the journalists in America said, okay, we can't cover this story anymore. Let's go on and find something else. This is a, chi a, a oh. Chinese bio lab in California that is sitting there creating Lord knows what. They had uh, hundreds of mice that had been infected purposely uh, with various diseases um, as part of what appeared to be the same kind of um, research that led to the coronavirus, uh, COVID, you know. And I don't see a whole lot of evidence that anybody in the White House, or, uh, frankly, in Congress, is very concerned about this. <clears throat> now, it's, it was an unpermitted laboratory. Um, it was run by Prestige Biotech in Reedley, California. And you wrote that they, they found several hundred laboratory mice being kept in unsafe conditions and appeared to have been genetically altered to both catch 
and communicate the deadly virus that killed more than one million Americans since January of 2020. And you go further on to say that uh, the Centers for Disease, uh, the CDC, uh, inspected the lab and determined that at least 20 potentially infectious agents were sur- sur- the, the teeth and backwards stored under inadequate conditions. Right. You know, I just, um, Annie, this, this is this lab was found in an abandoned warehouse, an abandoned warehouse <laughs> that nobody was paying attention to. And you go into it, and not only do you find those 20 agents, not only do you find those genetically modified mice to transmit and to receive certain diseases, but they found all kinds of supplies, um, chemicals and otherwise, stacked up in this. And, you know, my gosh, I mean, you would think that there would be some kind of uh, uh, real concern on the part of the president and on the part of both party leadership in Congress. What in the world is going on? And as you said at the outset of this portion, you know, how many more are there? This this could be a real this could be a real national security brawl. You know, we've got a massive homeless problem here in the United States thanks to this current administration and their policies. Now, in an abandoned building like that is candy to a kid. And I'm sorry, oh, yeah. um, here, I, I live in a nice area here in South Carolina, and they were putting up an apartment building complex behind where I go for physical therapy. And they've been working on this apartment complex, oh, I'd say now for about two years. And finally, the building is starting to come back up again. It was obvious in my nice neighborhood that there were homeless inside that abandoned building. Now you've got this huge warehouse, a little bit off the beaten path, but it's a perfect place for people to go and shelter for the homeless. And, oh, by the way, with all the supplies in there, isn't that a great place to loot because these PPEs, the personal protection equipment that they have in the lab, that's a gold mine out there on the street. And yes, it, it turns around, and it ha- comes down to uh, Jessalyn Harper, who was a local code enforcement official that saw something was wrong here. So a local code enforcement cop found this. And again, how many are more are there across the rest of the United States that we don't know about? Yeah. And ask yourself this question. Why was it a local code enforcement official who just happened to notice something that was amiss that found this Chinese bio lab and not the the FBI people. You're breaking up, Mark. What, what are these people at the FBI and the uh, national security agencies, why is it they didn't find this lab? Why did it take a local code enforcement official to find it? That's, that's one of the things that I find especially concerning. It's very frightening. And then when you look at the potential diseases that could have been spread from inside of there, uh, such as like E. coli, 
um, HIV, malaria, and OG, SARS and COVID-2, also known as COVID-19, inside this lab. And then you say, all right, we've got 96% of the country that is not coming down with COVID, not being hospitalized for it. Why do we have these little pockets of only 4%? How many of these labs are near those pockets of outbreak? Yeah. Good question. Yeah. And, yeah. Now, they just follow yeah. the thread. And, and it's not just COVID. Um, you know, these all these other things that they have engineered and apparently made it possible to inject it into a population where it then spreads, um, that, that's an act of war. We, we ought to call it what it is. Putting a secret bio lab in our country with that kind of capability is an act of war, um, but it's not being treated as such. No, heaven forbid that we actually declare war on China. Uh, China is in a huge economic downturn, and they're, they're threatening Taiwan, which is an ally of ours. They have been obviously on direct attack against the United States uh, with the COVID outbreak. Um, and they're flooding our market with their stuff that they're manufacturing. You go anywhere and try to buy something that does not say made in China today. It's a challenge. So yep. we have turned ourselves economically over to a nation that's already collapsing from within. And this is the perfect time to say, all right, fine. You're doing war on us. Now we're going to in turn do war on you. Go after them economically. Go after them with sanctions. Go after them with everything we have in our toolbox before you pull out the military. We can do this, but we've got a yeah. weak administration. Well, it's, it's, not, it's not a uh, military situation when you have a bio lab put in. That's an indication mm-hmm. of uh, it doesn't respect us, and it's also an indication that the people – here in our government that we are depending on to be on guard, they're missing stuff, and they're missing important stuff. So I, I'm, I think that is something that uh, we all should be very concerned about. Mm-hmm. Now, absolutely, absolutely. Now, Congress is coming back in session next week after Labor Day, yeah. Um, yeah. which is why it was great to have Mark Mix on just before um, – Now, when they come back in, they're going to be looking at the budget. And there are a couple of people in Congress that are looking at what our our, our government has been doing since the pandemic. Uh, Joni Erst is one of them that you write about, uh, where she's looking at the funding for unused office space. Everyone's now working out of home. They're working remotely. And we're paying for all these office spaces that no one's using. That's our tax dollars being flushed down the toilet or into a realtor's pocket, and they're making a nice profit on an empty space. Um, Why can't we break the leases or sell the leases or do something to recoup our money? Um, We have a representative, Dick Morris Rogers, that are talking about zombie programs. Um, Are we going to finally see a halfway reasonable budget, or is this just more hot, hot air? I tell you, Annie, I think this September is going to be a very, very ugly uh, season of of 
debate, if you will, if you want to call it that, in Congress and between Congress and the White House, because the um, the most conservative members of the Republicans in the House, the House Freedom Caucus people, uh, have made it very clear that they it's not going to be business as usual this time. They are going to stand firm, and they're going to insist that Congress do with us to pass the 13 regular appropriations bills, uh, then send them to the Senate, and then have a debate, a discussion, negotiation with the Senate on what actually finally gets passed and sent to the president. If, if we haven't had a regular order budget from Congress in decades. And what has happened instead is they wait until the very last minute and then they put together one of these humongous 5,000-page omnibus bills. The reason they love those omnibus bills is because nobody can read them before they get passed, and therefore you can stuff all kinds of earmarks into them, all kinds of other stuff that um, <clears throat> probably should not be funded and certainly should be questioned. doesn't get questioned because there's not enough time and it's too big a bill, and they pass it, and things just keep getting worse and worse and worse uh, in terms of the fiscal condition of this country. Uh, in the White House and the Democratic leadership, and frankly, a lot of them. Oh, you're breaking like up again, Mark. I'm sorry. We're losing you. There's a lot. There's a lot of folks in Washington who don't. They don't want to change that. No, no, there's there's a, a lot. And, you know, we're talking about um, Joni Ernst going after this, uh, the empty offices. Uh, but you also write in the article, there's also a consequence of these people not being in a centralized location where there is supervision over them. Uh, because people are now calling into these government agencies, whether it's Social Security or Veterans Affairs or any of the other uh, government a- agencies, and calls are not being responded to. They're left on extremely long wait holds if the calls are even picked up or returned. Uh, and the lack of services this government is giving compared to the amount of money they're raking in from our taxes is not equitable. Yeah. And there's there's a number of examples, and I'm sure there are many, many more that have not been found yet, but they will be, where you have, for example, one uh, veteran who was calling and calling and calling trying to get an appointment with a doctor, um, and he died. And who knows, if he had gotten that appointment with that doctor, perhaps he wouldn't have not died. Um, the reason he didn't get the appointment is because he couldn't get anybody at VA where he was calling. To, um, to answer the friggin' phone. So, you know, the problem is, as Senator Ernst points out, when you let everybody in government work from home, then you don't really know if everybody is doing what you're paying them for. And there is a significant amount of evidence that there are a lot of folks who are on the government payroll who are not doing their work. And when that happens, Service levels go down. People uh, who need the services of the government uh, don't get it in a prompt and, and efficient manner and causes problems for all of us. So Senator Ernst is saying if they're not going to the offices, let's stop paying for the offices. 
Makes sense to me. <coughs> Excuse me. You wrote, the average salary paid to employees of the 109 federal departments and agencies was more than 100000 annually. In addition yeah. to the high salaries, they also get 44 days off of paid time. Yes. 44 days off a month and a half? I'm sorry. I'm right. accustomed. You get a job and you get two weeks off. Well, you have to wait for your first year. <laughs> then you get two weeks off. Yeah. Uh, 44 yep. days? $100,000 to sit home and eat popcorn and, and drink soda or beer while you're pretending to answer the agency you're supposed to be working for and not doing that? $100,000? Gee, that's one hell of a welfare check. Well, I'll, I'll tell you, Annie, my father was a civilian employee of the Air Force for some years. My grandfather was a postal employee. My great-grandfather was a postal employee. I worked for the government before I became a journalist. Government service, public service to me is a noble thing, but we have an awful lot of people working in our government who are not taking it seriously as a noble pursuit. No, it's, it's an excuse to get a pension. Uh, I mean, right. my my first husband, he was a Marine, um, and he was going to get me a job as a civilian uh, with the Marine Corps. And I was talking to one of the girls that worked there, and she asked me a question that really struck me strange. She goes, well, if you do start working here and you see there's a way to do something faster and better, would you go to the supervisor and tell them? I said, of course I would. She goes, that's not how we work here. I said, excuse me? If you can do that job smarter, faster, and better, wouldn't you want to do that? That's not how we work here. You're going to rock the boat. That's the mentality that we have of government employees today. It's unfortunate, but that is that is a fact. Annie, we're going to have to do this again. <laughs> and two more weeks. We definitely and will, Mark. In two more weeks. Forgive me, but I've got to go. Well, you go and you battle the dragons over there, and we got your back, Mark. All righty. We'll talk to you next time. All right. God bless. All right. Read Mark Tapscott over at the Epoch Times, and there's a link up on the show page, epochtimes.com. Curtis, you still with us, or did you fall asleep? I think I lost Curtis. I don't know if I have Curtis with us. Do we? Um, I don't know, Curtis. Can you hear us? And I can't write to him because my thing is not going. I'm hoping Curtis can jump in here, and I hope that you can hear me because uh, we'll keep on going. One of the things, <coughs> excuse me, um, there was an article, not actually a small blurb that came up on Newsmax. And Representative Comer was talking to Newsmax, and they're bringing up the possibility of impeaching Joe Biden. And with all the stuff that is coming to light lately um, about now we've got this whole mess of something like, I don't know, was it, uh, I forget how many emails uh, that were found under, oh, here we go, 5,400 emails with pseudonyms. 
And I had a laugh as if it was kind of like really, really um, obvious because uh, his name is Joseph Robinette um, Biden. Well, he went by the uh, name of Robin Ware, uh, J.R.B. Ware. Joseph Robinette Biden Ware, W-A-R-E. And come on, I, 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 can you get a little bit more clever than that? Uh, sorry. Anyway, these emails that came up, uh, we're finding, we're following the money uh, through his son, Hunter Biden. Uh, we're following now uh, the trips that were taken on the vice president's plane as he was vice president with his son, Hunter, along. That was supposed to be for pleasure for Hunter just coming along but it turned out to be business uh these are all things that are coming to light so more and more we're finding uh, good reasons for articles of impeachment and there's enough support in the house and evidence to move forward uh from what uh representative comer has been saying but he's cautioning that you got to make sure the progress doesn't backfire in the 2024 election and the reason he's saying that he's afraid of it backfiring and he cites historical instances of this. Um, he was saying that um, he would predict that if we have an impeachment inquiry in September, um, I think our colleagues in the House realize this is a serious offense that what the Bidens have been doing. They've been selling access to our federal government. But he's added it's more than likely compromised because of millions of dollars he's taken from countries like China, Ukraine, and Russia. So I think there's overwhelming support now within our conference to move forward. Um, However, he's worrying this is how it's going to backfire. He said when the Republicans impeached Bill Clinton, they lost the majority. When the Democrats impeached Donald Trump, they lost the majority. So there's a legitimate concern, and we're trying to be careful. Because we are trying to take back the Senate and the White House. Uh, So the question is... Will this in turn backfire on us if we go forward to impeach him in the House? You know it's not going to, the Senate's not going to do it because we don't have the majority in the Senate. And, and if we don't have the Senate, then there's no, no full impeachment. So will that backfire? Or, or with Trump under all these indictments now, will it go in our favor? Saying what's good for the goose is good for the gander. This is a gamble that we're going to be taking, and I don't have an answer, honestly. I don't know what to say is the correct answer here. I can see both sides of the coin. I would love, personally, personally, I would love to see articles of impeachment be brought forward to the House. I'd like to see it for Biden. I'd like to see it for Mayorkas. And there's several other people I can think of, including Fauci, that should be brought forward on, on articles of impeachment for numerous reasons, including dereliction of duty, lying to the public. Fauci, definitely lying to the public. Um, Mayorkas failing to perform his duties in defending this nation and defending our borders. That's a dereliction of duty. Um, There are reasons to bring these forward. But then again, if we look at the the history, historically what has happened, that... When the Republicans brought articles of impeachment, we lost the majority. When the Democrats did it with Donald Trump, they lost the majority. Well, 
the question is, do we go forward or not? I don't, I honestly, I don't have an answer. And I'm hoping Curtis can join this conversation soon. <laughs> Otherwise, for the next 20 minutes, I'm going to be talking to myself. Anyway, I want to welcome everyone that is watching over on Facebook as well as uh, here on Blog Talk Radio. We are banned again, once again, taken down off of YouTube. And matter of fact, our show on Facebook had been taken down also. So not only YouTube, but Facebook are now starting to um, censure us. Uh, so I want to say hi to everyone that is able to. And I hope that you're on our homepage also watching and listening and uh, we will be migrating the home page to a new service. I was trying to update the page today, and if you heard me cursing, <laughs> oh, Lord, you'd be running out the front door. <laughs> anyway, um, for those that are listening also, we did not do the dedication at the start of the show. We will do it towards the last uh, 10, 15 minutes of it. Um, I had mentioned the uh, 5,400 emails that have surfaced uh, with Joe Biden uh, under his pseudonyms. And he had four different pseudonyms. Uh, three of them is Robin Ware, Robert L. Peters, and J.R.B. Ware. <coughs> and these were the pseudonyms he used as vice president under Barack Obama. And, um, <coughs> excuse me. Uh, the National Archives and Records Administration acknowledged these officially, and they reported them to the New York Post. Uh, it was the, uh, the Post that put out a FOIA, a Freedom of Information request, back in June of 2022. Also, the Southeastern Legal Foundation, the SLF, SLF is a nonprofit constitutional legal group. They're the ones that requested the email. And... Um, they're saying that as they go through these, it's going to be a lot that's going to become uncovered. And maybe we'll see a little bit more in the workings of the Biden family and how they made their money from Ukraine, China, Russia. Interesting. In- very, very interesting. Uh, now, we all know Trump has been indicted for election interfering. Um, That's the basis of the charges. Um, However, there's a story that's been breaking out of Michigan where there are thousands of 2020 voter registration forms that have surfaced. Two weeks before the 2020 election, a woman dropped off more than 10,000 voter registration forms with a city clerk in Muskegon, Michigan. And the number of forms was a red flag for the city clerk. Um, Less than 4,000 of the city's voting age residents weren't registered to vote. So where did she come up with 10,000 if less than 4,000 were registered to vote? Uh, And Curtis is having problems with his... He's having problems on his end of the communications... Let's see if we can try to bring him back in here. I see him up in the screen. Curtis, can you hear us now? Curtis is having a problem with his equipment. And I don't know what's going on, but uh, I see him there, and I don't hear him. So I'm sorry, folks. It's just technical difficult. Thank you very much, Blog Talk Radio. Another reason why I'm trying to get off. 
I almost have the new program figured out, and I will try to work with Curtis this week on doing a test run to see if we can get the new uh, new system up and running. Um, as I was saying, about here in Muskegon, Michigan, uh, the woman, Brianna Hawkins, who delivered the forms, was employed by GBI Strategies. It's an out-of-state firm working to boost Democratic voter turnout in urban centers in key swing states to help then-candidate Joe Biden defeat Donald Trump. Now, I went a little bit further into some of this, and um, GBI Strategies lists as the people that they do business with. They received over $2 million from the Democratic Senatorial Campaign Committee. Uh, They received, and this is for the 2020 election cycle, over $1 million from the DNC Services Corp. And that's the Democratic National Committee Services Corp. Uh, The Democratic Party of Iowa gave them close to half a million. Black PAC, which supports Democratic and progressive um, uh, candidates, gave them close to half a million dollars. And Biden for president also gave them close to half a million dollars. So the top five payments they received, that's the top five. Uh, After that is Black Church PAC, Julian for the Future, whatever the heck that is. That's only $18,000. And the League of Conservation Voters, uh, the tree huggers. Just shy of 2000 there. So out of the top eight, the top eight, the top six are all Democrats. And I don't see a single Republican uh, group on here. So GBI Strategies is the company that went out to collect these voter registrations. Now, there is an FBI investigation Um, local Muskegon Police Department contacted Michigan State authorities, who in turn contacted the FBI. And so they do have proof of voter fraud in Michigan. Now, we had on recently a guest that exposed voter fraud in the state of Pennsylvania. Uh, There's now voter fraud being exposed in Virginia. And we're seeing nationwide instances of this arising of voter fraud. Now, the question that was raised by this clerk in Michigan that received it, it said, well, this seemed to be possibly more widespread than just the state of Michigan. This is potentially nationwide. So now we'll see whether or not the Biden administration, Department of Justice, FBI, will follow through on this investigation. It it may take a new administration coming in, a Donald Trump, or any, any Republican, anyone other than Joe Biden or Gavin Newsom or whoever else they're going to throw at us. Actually, as a matter of fact, uh, Robert Kennedy Jr. would not be a bad pick for the Democrats if they had half a brain, because he could carry the ticket. <coughs> and at least he's more of a, a moderate than what we have in there, someone that you can at least work with. 
Um, so this is going to be something that could help the Trump administration, uh, the Trump case. Um, so we're going to wait and see what happens with that. This is, and I, I pulled up police reports and everything else. They did extensive interviews, and I'm looking at 38 pages of interviews that they did of various people that worked for GBI and how they were paid, what their job was, and all the specifics. But they were finding extreme similarities in a lot of the voter registrations. Signatures were very similar. The handwritings were extremely similar, application after application. Addresses were bogus. Names were bogus. Applications were not completely filled out. Um, and yet the person that turned this, all these applications in claimed she went through all of them and proofed them. So this has a potential to blow wide open if lamestream media is willing to run with it. So the Michigan police memos raise concerns about a nationwide voter registration fraud scheme. And it sounds like Curtis finally got himself in here. Curtis, are you finally with us? Can you hear me now? Oh, we got you. We got you. Wow. <laughs> Hours and I mean, minutes been, later. I've been trying to, to, to get involved, but nobody could hear me. <laughs> like screaming for bloody murder. Hey, I'm here. <laughs> I tell you. <laughs> it has been a great show. Um, it is shorter. And yes, we dropped it from a full three hours down to an hour and a half. I mean, doing uh, the notes and everything for a three-hour show, it takes me several days. And you guys know that I, I do my research. I go into everything. I pull up anything and everything I possibly can. And I want to make sure that the information I give out to you is accurate. And, you know, those Curtis knows how I work. And so I, I it just it was just getting a little bit too much for me. And I find that doing an hour and a half actually it's a lot more relaxing. I'm not as as, as tense and I think I can get more um power for the punch for doing an hour or an hour and a half with the show. Plus you're gonna be going on book signing tours, speaking tours and everything else, so your time oh, yeah. is becoming very precious with us. Limited, yeah. But I would like to comment yeah. on the question that you asked about the um, impeachment and the possible ramifications if we proceeded with that. The way I look at it, if we sit here and start um, trying to factor in how this is going to affect the next election, then I think we're playing politics. You know, I mean, if there was a crime committed, we need to address it. They, now, they had no problem going after Trump on some trumped-up charges. Matter of fact, I believe they impeached him two or three times, and they're still Twice. steaming yeah. away. Yeah, so mm -hmm. the, the way I look at it, this is different from whatever happened in the past because this would be almost like a match. You know? They impeached ours, we impeached theirs. And then I think the facts will come out about what's been going on, and that will open the eyes of a lot more people, I believe even those who have supported Biden. That's my take yeah. on it. It's, it's, a, it, it, it's a gamble. You're actually throwing a quarter up, coin up in the air and seeing which way it's going to land, honestly. That's how I'm looking at it. 
Um, I agree if there is a crime that's been committed, it should be exposed. Yeah. And and is and I think they're going to try to cheat it. anyway. They're going to try to cheat again anyway. So go for yeah. it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, our show, we're down to our last 10 minutes here, Curtis. The show is really, I'm sorry that you weren't able to join us because it was a lot of fun (laughs) talking to Mark Mix and Mark Tapscott, my two Marks. Uh, I marked the spot. (laughs) Anyway, those that listen listen to the show know that we do a dedication each and every show to a fallen hero. And today's dedication is going to go out to uh, Trooper J. Rougeau who was shot and killed by a wanted man near the intersection of Swamp Road and Baumgardner Drive in Walker Township. Um, Let me get everything over here. His end of watch was Saturday, June 17th of this year. And this reads, at about 11 a.m., the subject entered the parking lot of the Pennsylvania State Troopers Troop G, Lewiston Station, and shot several patrol cars using a large-caliber hunting rifle. The man fled the scene and called 911 several times as they searched for him. The man then shot and critically wounded a Pennsylvania State Police Lieutenant in Mifflingtown Borough at about 12.45 p.m. that day before fleeing again. And then shortly before 3 p.m., the man was located in a shopping center in Walker Township and then fled into a nearby wooded area where he and Trooper Rougeau were both killed during a shootout. Trooper Rougeau had served with the Pennsylvania State Police for almost three years. He survived by his wife, mother, sister, brother, niece, and two nephews. He was only 29 years old. And this is from CBS News. A Pennsylvania state trooper who was shot and killed earlier this month when he went to work on his day off after learning his barracks had been attacked by an armed man was laid to rest during a funeral where the state's governor and his colleagues lauded him as a hero who only wanted to serve his community. Jacques J.F. Rougeau, Jr., 29, a native of Corey who lived in Mifflingtown, was shot on June 17th by Brandon Stein of Thompsontown. Stein also critically wounded another trooper that day in a separate incident before he was shot and killed himself after a manhunt and a fierce gun battle with law enforcement. Rougeau was killed by a gunshot through the windshield of his patrol car as he drove down a road in Walker Township, not far from the state police barracks. He had been a trooper since 2001 and was the 104th member of the state police to be killed in the line of duty. Speaking at the service, Governor Josh Shapiro said Rougeau had a servant's heart and lived a life of purpose as a dedicated trooper who loved cheering on Penn State football, playing pickup basketball at the Corey YMCA, and mentoring kids during youth basketball games. In every part of his life, Jay wanted to give back and serve others, Shapiro said. His funeral was held at a packed Bayfront Convention Center in Erie. Lieutenant James Wagner, 45, the other trooper shot by Stein, had remained hospital and is now in rehab. 
still in critical condition. He is the father of three sons, and he enlisted in state police in 2020 and was assigned as the station commander of Troop G in Bedford Station. Today's show is dedicated to Trooper Jacques Rougeau, Jr. It is also dedicated to all the brave men and women out there that serve as first responders, be they law enforcement, firefighters, or emergency services. We also dedicate this show to all the brave men and women that serve in our military from the birth of this nation through today and into our hopeful future. We want to thank you for listening to Southern Sense here on Blog Talk Radio, on Facebook, on SHR Media, on everywhere else that we could be heard. And we want to thank you for joining us. Please remember to visit our website, which is the name of the show, Southern Sense. Just put a dash in the middle, southern-sense.com. As we go into our future, as we look for a new adventure and a new layout and a new look and a new show, we dedicate to them this song by my friend Gary Pecorella, Save America. May God bless each and every one, and may you have a safe, healthy, and enjoyable Labor Day. Until then, I say good night, and God bless, and see you back here next Friday.
Hey, Curtis, you still there? Nope. 